Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people where this podcast is recorded. In today's episode, I sit down and speak with John Andrew Robertson about Captain America, Goldilocks and economics and how it all fits together. So I do hope you enjoyed this interview. It was a bunch of fun to record. I also hope you all had a great holiday season and stay safe in the new year. Enjoy. So today I am joined by a teacher of economics at James Madison University, John Robinson, who also contributed to the Super Superheroes and Economics book, which you are all probably familiar with now. I've talked to a few of the authors on this podcast. So he contributed to Chapter 5, From Weakling to Superhero, The Economics of Captain America. So hello, John. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. My first question that I like to ask, ask guests so far is how you first became interested in economics as a whole. And then second, how did your contribution to this book come about? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I actually first got into economics uh, my very first semester in college. I took I actually did my, my very first semester at community college, and I took two economics classes with a wonderful teacher um, whose name escapes me, but uh, she was great, and I, I immediately fell in love with the subject. I, I think this is not incredibly uncommon among economists, but I, I remember thinking when I took my first classes uh, uh, that you know, wow! I this is this is how I think of the world. Uh, you know, how how amazing that this is a you know this is a whole subject. And uh, and so then I went through college and I I so I majored in economics and uh, somewhere along the road thought I would do other things and did a lot of literature, a lot of uh, philosophy, but uh, ultimately ended up going to grad school in economics and studying. Um, the history of economic thought and political economy, but I, I've always done a lot of interdisciplinary work. Um, that's always been my passion, kind of right from the beginning. And uh, and so a project like this was, uh, you know, really exciting. And I we started I started working on it because um, my colleague Bill Wood, um, also at James Madison University came to me and asked if I'd be interested in writing a, a chapter for this book on um, superheroes and economics. And we kind of kicked around a couple of ideas and uh, we, we agreed that Captain America would be a great topic. So we went from there. Awesome. So I guess what drew you specifically to want to explore the superhero universe? Well, gosh, I mean, I'm, I've been a fan of superheroes for really as long as I can remember and not as much and I may get in trouble with some people here not as much reading the comic books themselves though I've, I have some um, but but I, I remember basically I guess as long ago as Wikipedia existed going down these you know rabbit holes reading all about all the different superheroes their different powers their relationships to one another what teams they were on who they allied with um, I, I loved that because it's you know, it's a modern mythology, and I, I've, since I was a kid, I've loved everything from, you know, Greco-Roman mythology, the Norse gods, Tolkien, uh, you know, you name it. Um, 
you know, if it's got elements of, of myth and heroes and villains and epic combat, um, I've been into it. So the idea that I could, you know, write a book on, or uh, write a chapter for um, a book on, you know, superheroes and the economic lessons there uh, within their stories was, was something I obviously couldn't pass up. Yeah, it definitely, yeah, it's definitely like a fun thing to look at. And it's a pretty, there's a lot of content, I think, you could do so much with it. It's almost like you're just given this wealth of information and then you just need to construct it into something. Um, so, so yeah, in your chapter about Captain America, so I've just got the abstract, um, but what I can see is you sort of look at his production and consumption opportunities that are expanded. Obviously, Steve Rogers is like a tiny little kind of dweeby character who somehow gets into the army and then is given this experimental drug and becomes the Captain America we know and love. So what sort of um, analysis did you do or what did you find when you were looking at the change of him? Yeah, well, it, it was it was a lot of fun to, to work on Captain America. You know, our first idea, um, and I think I, we, I owe this one to, to Bill Wood, was just this simple notion that, you know, Captain America was uh, – you know, it's fun to look at because he was under the ice for 70 years and we could, you know, do something with uh, interest rates and inflation and there, there might be some, you know, fun little thing to do there. But then we thought, you know, there, there's more to the story than that. Um, and if we if we go to the movies and we decided we wanted to kind of work mostly with the, the movie version uh, for the sake of sort of the broadest appeal, you know, there, there are all of these typically economic questions that arise about trade-offs, um, opportunity costs of, you know, his life choices. Uh, we've got questions about the control of, or, or the control of externalities, uh, the provision of public goods. There's a, a great debate in civil war over the role of bureaucracy and, and its ability to make the right kinds of decisions. Um, so all of these things that we, we find, you know, in studying economics, you know, really richly explored through the narrative um, of the, you know, of Captain America's three movies and the, the two Avengers movies at the time. And so we, we kind of, the, the chapter goes through, I think, four different sort of subtopics. Um, the first being that, that first idea um, about, uh, you know, the, the main question did you know Captain America become rich under the ice and then we move on from there and talk about creative destruction and sort of the changes in an economy over time and then we move on to the uh, sort of political economy elements of his story the you know who can provide a good defense what sort of decision makers can do that um, you know how global defense is sort of the ultimate public good um, and, and sort of all the economic analysis that had gone into, you know, understanding how public goods are provided, why they might need to be provided by a central authority or, or you know, might they not be. Um, was there anything that sort of surprised you about Captain America's story when you were exploring him in this new way? Huh. That is a really good question. Yeah, actually, the this is, you know, maybe not as not as profound, but the, as we were doing the 
the calculations. We wanted to make sure we had our numbers right as we were sort of estimating, you know, answering this first question, which we, we've really thought of as, as kind of a minor thing, just a, just an opportunity to explore these very basic concepts of, of interest and inflation. And, and we have a table in the chapter where we, we um, look at what, had, what might have happened if Rogers had invested $1,000 in various ways um, uh, back in uh, 1943, and and what might have happened in 2011 when he came out of the ice, and um, and in some ways it was it was kind of depressing, you know, the, the story. It was like if he um, if he didn't do anything with it, his inflation adjusted value, uh, you know, in relative terms would have been something like seventy eight dollars if he just buried the money in the ground. It, it, you know, he could have bought a car for that thousand dollars back in 1943, and in 2011, there's no way. And then we looked at you know various other uh, investment uh, vehicles, and you know sort of the, the best case scenario that we came up with is if if he'd invested in stocks, his inflation adjusted value would have been around eight thousand dollars out of that original thousand, you know, which is good. Um, but you know what it what it kind of suggests is it's a it's a bit of a warning. You know, you you want to keep putting money in that investment account. Uh, you don't want to just throw a thousand dollars in there and leave it alone, because uh, unless you're getting a really good return, um, it's you know it's not going to be this tremendous thing. Um, still good, better than nothing, but you know you, you got to keep investing. And so you know the, I think the big the big point there was what a, what a bummer that during those 70 years he was into the ice he didn't get to uh, uh, keep earning money. Yeah. <laughs> So that was that was that was sort of fun as we you know made it through those calculations. If only he had have met, um, I don't remember his name, Tony Stark's dad. If only he had have met him and yeah. maybe invested yeah. in some weapons or something. I think that would kind of go against his moral alignment. But well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and we actually we sort of talked about that as well, and that that kind of led us into the next section of the paper about the the dynamic economy. And this is, you know, this builds on um, Schumpeter's ideas of creative destruction. And so we've we've got this notion that a growing economy is going to be full of successes and failures, and that and that failure is an absolutely necessary part of a of a growing and dynamic economy. And that this actually really struck us as a as a key essential part of Captain America's character that that he is, you know, simultaneously his his um, possibilities in life were, in in many ways, tremendously enhanced by taking this super serum. Right, he went from being a, a you know small, weak uh, character who had a great heart, great spirit, but but really limited opportunities, to to this you know great, powerful hero. Um, and yet, he is in 2011 when he comes out of the ice. He is a, a man out of time. And and there's something a little melancholic about his character, you know, as he's listing off the the things that are are good, the things that are that are nice, um, you know, for for very obvious reasons. He he lost the love of his life, um, you know, the the culture around him has changed, and so he's he's displaced, and you know, he's not home, and and it makes for a really, I think, it, it that gives his character complexity, that that. You know, he he might be happy because he's able to do the thing he always wanted to do, which is save the world, be a hero. But at the same time, he's he's melancholy. You know, he's it's not he. You know, he asked the question. They told us we won the war. He didn't say what we lost. Um, so he he struggles with this. 
And that, I think, really parallels nicely the economists' uh, views of of the economy. That you know, we we look at we tend to focus so much on the growth that occurs, and and perhaps rightly so. You know, the, the tremendous growth over time, the the material wealth, the increasing opportunities that that we have, say, over you know our grandparents' time. Um, and yet, that doesn't mean that there aren't losses and and you know, I think Captain America's character allows for a really healthy exploration of, of you know, the way that a, a person can feel nostalgic for very real losses that occur right alongside this, you know, these dramatically increasing opportunities. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was looking at some of Brian's other work, and it was so that he was writing about um, like backstories and how we're interested in what drives a character to do the things that they do and how characters have to have a good backstory that's believable. So I guess with Captain America, that's a interesting point is he he loved his world that he lived in and he wanted to protect it and now he's not necessarily protecting the world that he loved. He's sort of learning about this whole new age, which I mean is so different. You go under ice for 70 years, the 70 years that he was under ice, it's not like you know, 1850 to 1920 when not a lot happened. It's dramatic change. So, yeah, I'd never really thought of that. Like, his behaviors are probably conflicted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So is he your favorite character in the Marvel Universe? Uh, Yeah, I think that's... um, I've always always really liked Captain America a lot. Um, My my other favorite... (laughs) since I was a kid has been uh, Wolverine. So uh, very different characters, but, but also I think interestingly, you know, both, both characters with a, with a really long personal history that spans a great uh, number of, at least in some tellings of the story, um, you know, over, over many, many years. And so, so both of them deal with this issue of um, the, a world that changes around them. Yeah, absolutely. Immortality is never painted as a fun thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you know that's a there's there's a lot of wisdom there, probably. Definitely. Okay, cool. Um, so you sent me a paper about Goldilocks and property things like that, which was which was super fun, and I do want to talk about that. But before we move on, is there anything oh, yeah. else about this book or about superhero worlds that you wanna wanna touch on? Well, yeah. I, well, I guess before before I you, you know we move on. Um, the, the last piece of the of the paper, which I think superheroes are an especially good vehicle. Uh, they, they serve really well to explore these these ideas of um, about decision making and, and and power and and externalities. And this is actually it's a theme that, that we see in um, you know it, it kind of has become prominent in a lot of the big sci-fi thrillers recently. It's almost a trope. The, the massive amounts of destruction that we see uh, as the good guys are preventing the bad guys from you know doing great harm, but then there's this question of how you know who's responsible for all of the destruction that occurs, and and that's a that's a big question in civil war, and and so the big debate that occurs between Tony Stark and Steve Rogers in that movie is I think a really good and important question. That that doesn't necessarily have clear answers, and in so many ways, I think that's 
that's one thing that stories are really good for. You know, we can have models that help us to explore these questions, but to contextualize them with real human stories, to give them a narrative, um, I think is really worthwhile. And uh, and so that's what happens in 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 this story with Captain America, and his he's on the side of skepticism uh, about the the. Um, incentives that bureaucrats are going to face, that their, their willingness to make the hard choices that Captain America feels like he can make. And, you know, Tony Stark, on the other hand, is really concerned about the, as economists would put it, the negative externalities of the superhero's choices, which is to say, you know, they, they don't bear all of the costs of their decision. Certainly they bear some of the costs. They, they're the ones who are getting, uh, you know, shot at and, and having, um, you know, getting potentially endangering their lives, but but they also you know it's not their houses, their buildings, their their cities um, that are that are in the crossfire, and so I think you know that's that's where Tony Stark is concerned, and and both Captain America and uh, so both Steve and and uh, Tony Stark have valid concerns, and so they I think illustrate really nicely the the various trade-offs and the complexity of the of the decisions that you know economists are trying to study and so i think i you know in that sense i I actually think that using these sorts of stories to illustrate economic concepts and the sorts of things that we are trying to to study can be super helpful for for people who are who are trying to teach but also for specialists you know to to kind of reconnect in in some way with the uh, you know, ironically, I was using these fantasy stories to, to reconnect with the reality of the of the things we're trying to understand. Um, I think it definitely helps, especially how we're just talking about the Civil War now. Is the the whole idea? Well, one of my one of my teachers at school used to always use the phrase: "There's no such thing as a one-handed economist." Like, there's always there's always <laughs> two sides, um, and. Just the general fact that we use these models and we make these forecasts and we do a lot of stuff under the assumption that people are going to behave rationally, but people don't behave rationally. They're not sitting down themselves saying, should I put money on red or black? I'm going to draw out this chart and actually see what the outcomes could be. A lot of our choices are just random and sometimes misinformed, so... In the context of superheroes sure. where the stakes are so high, it probably also helps to sort of explain that, yeah, we have, we have all of those beautiful models and things like that, but then when it comes to real life and real stories, even if they're fake stories, we think they're fake stories, um, yeah. then it can help explain that. So be interesting. Absolutely. Did you, um, Sanka, just sort of as well, because we were talking about Steve Rogers and Tony Stark, did you have a look at anything to do with the fact that they don't have an alter ego? Or hidden identity? Uh, no, you know I didn't, and I and I listened to uh, your last podcast about um, Batman yeah. and the Shadow, um, and and I know you guys you got into some of that. Um, that you know that didn't occur to me actually. Uh, that and it's funny I don't I don't know that I think about all my you know my favorite my favorite heroes. You know Wolverine doesn't have an alter ego either, uh, and you know yeah I. I, I didn't really think about the sort of the personal trade-offs that they face being being fully known as superheroes. But that, that you know, maybe part two. Part two, bring it on. They've definitely got some um, additional risks 
in that regard, having having people know exactly who they are. If they do get into a relationship sure, or start yeah. a family or something, then the risks of doing that are a lot yeah, greater. Actually, yeah, and, and that's actually interesting. Cause, and, and that comes through really, really clearly in the movies with Tony Stark's character, I think. You know, he's got, I think it's in the second Iron Man movie, maybe. Now, it's the second or the third where he, you know, uh, advertises his address on, uh, on the news, you know, says, you know, kind of come at me. Um, so there's, yeah, there's something, there's something there. And, and, and I'm sure there's some, some good stuff with, with Steve Rogers. And of course, that is a, that's a, a classic superhero question too about, uh, you know, how do, how does my desire to protect the innocent, the innocents I love, uh, how do they, you know, how does that affect my decision making? Yeah, totally. Cool. Okay. So onto Goldilocks now, it's not just Goldilocks, but you did, share a paper with me that you wrote about the concept of property in fairy tales and folklore. Were you drawn to this subject matter for similar reasons? Uh, yeah, well, um, so again, I, I really think that stories are valuable. I think that they, they serve as a type of model um, in the same sense where we abstract away from reality certain things to clarify certain relationships in the world. So I, I you know, they're, they're not mathematical, but they're still, they're still models that can help us to understand human behavior, human institutions, human interactions. Now, if, yeah, so with, with property, so my, my dissertation was on conceptual property theory. Um, but this particular paper, it represents the, the intersection of that interest with my, my longstanding fascination and love of folk tales and fairy tales um and i and i i first started working on this idea in a in a class in grad school on economics and sociology um where i read a paper on by uh storin uh, bukevich on uh, entrepreneurship in the caribbean and in uh former soviet states and it was about how their the folk tales, the the stories, the cultural um, focal points in these these two different cultures, changed the nature of entrepreneurial activity in those cultures. Right. So the the, the story was uh, actually a little bit a little bit deeper than this the the um, superhero stuff where we're kind of leaving it at you know how do these stories illustrate economic ideas. This was you know their story their their contention was the stories that we're telling in these cultures actually affect how economic activity happens in these uh, and so so if we don't understand these cultural stories we're actually not going to fully understand the economy uh you know economic activity and so it was a, it was actually a, a you know telling these stories to scholars in some sense saying you know we have to understand this to properly really understand our subject and um, and so I did a similar thing with, although honestly not not as not quite as ambitious, but I, I I suggested that that these fairy stories can help us to understand the institution of property and and why property and ownership is important in our culture, sort of in our uh, and, and this would be specifically kind of in the in the Anglo-American. Um, culture and that's that's you know I took most of these stories were you know either Germanic or um, you know very much focal in in Anglo-American society. Yep. 
Yeah, cool. That uh, I find that quite fascinating. It's something I've never really thought of a whole lot is, yeah, what are, what are people even influenced by? Like, what do they hear about growing up as children? If we don't understand that, then how can we possibly try and forecast or assume anything? So that was pr- pretty right. cool to come well, across. Well, I'm glad. I, I really, I mean, this, this paper was really a labor of love, and I, I was so glad uh, to, you know, get it out there. Um, it's a short piece, but the you know the idea in in Goldilocks is so so straightforward. And I actually I love telling Goldilocks to my my kids, and in part because I you know I found this one little aspect of the story that that I find so fascinating. Of course, they're not thinking about that at all. But you know, property ownership is so central to ever to our entire economic system. And in the story in in the story of Goldilocks. You've got this assumption running running throughout that uh, you know the violation of someone else's property is is in itself like is obviously uh, a violation of something important. Right? We we judge uh, Goldilocks for violating the property of these these individuals, the bears, uh, uh, who she doesn't she doesn't know. They don't know her. Um, we don't we don't know her. We all we see is this one interaction, and, and that in itself is enough to to sort of you know cast judgment and 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 so we, we we like we know what she's how she's supposed to behave right and we know that she behaves poorly and actually the original versions of the story are are darker yeah far darker than the the modern versions um and but but the main point is that the this story assumes certain norms um by default that we all kind of participate in and it and it you know treats ownership as uh, you know, it doesn't make a big deal of it because it's just it's assumed, and I think I think that helps to illustrate some of you know what ownership is and does, and and when we think about it as specialists, as economists, I think it's healthy for us to to appreciate and understand kind of how it operates at these kind of subconscious levels, and I think that you know you can you can start to get at that at least with you know through stories among other ways, but but certainly stories are one of the ways to get. At those those underlying subconscious intuitions about these institutions. Yeah, totally. I thought I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, I I firstly didn't know that the original Goldilocks was about an old woman, and they sort of really describe yeah. her so poorly in those little little snippets you you included. But yeah. it was kind of it was kind of interesting looking at okay, so the story is setting up this person as the bad guy, but it doesn't tell anything about yeah. her like we don't know if she is starving and it's just trying to get inside to get right. some food or if she's on the run and things like that it's just straight up like this belongs to someone you don't touch it and that's what we grew up with right absolutely and i think i think that's actually really important that you, you, know, you bring that up that one of the things especially in these these very very short tales you know i think and and i'm getting a little bit i've, I've done of course Hopefully, the, the minimal responsible amount of of reading of uh, you know folklore analysis, to, so that I'm not speaking totally out of turn, um, but I'm sure a good lit person would, would school me in a thing or two. The fairy tale is it distills a very simple norm, and of course there are going to be exceptions. Like for instance, you know, well, what if it turns out this this old woman w- was indeed starving? You know, we, we could of course make allowances for that, and I think. I, you know, I think 
the most because that's what the culture does. But the the story doesn't get into all that. It it instead, like a model, it abstracts from those sorts of particularities, and then kind of teaches it a lesson. Sort of let's hold these things constant. You know, like you know, barring ex- certain exceptional rules or exceptional circumstances, this is the way you're supposed to behave. And then, it, you know, of course, as you mature and get older, you you learn more, hopefully, about those sorts of exceptions and and the com- the complexities of real life. But but the the fairy tale is really good at distilling those the norm, right? The this is like this is the general rule. Yeah. And um, and of course, very different fairy tales can do do that differently. And they do it in a way that's you know quite memorable and and lovely and simple that you know can be told to a three-year-old yeah totally and i mean we do that in economics all the time like you just you're holding everything constant like in a simple world this would happen but we have ten thousand other things going on we're just going to pretend that they stay the same (laughs) to write this theory right right. i mean i think a lot of the time the theories hold true but only generally Right. Well, and I think that's, I, yeah, I, that's a, that's a really good parallel. I, I, and I think, I, you know, it's hard. So, you know, I teach a lot of principles classes and it's difficult to know sometimes how much you want to introduce all of the various exceptions to the, to the model. Yeah. And so I, I probably picked this up somewhere, but I, as I'm describing how we model things in class. I I introduced the idea of the elementary school globe. This is what I tell my students. You know that that we you know you're all introduced to a globe in elementary school, and you know it's it's a model of the earth and it's really really useful. Um, and you can actually learn some truths from it. You know you you learn that the United States is you know halfway across the world from China and that. You know, you can't just walk to China. You could walk to Canada. It would be far, but you could, you, you know, certain things you can learn. But and if you were to go outside and 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 see the the lake nearby and and scream, you know, oh my goodness, there was there's a lake out here and it wasn't on the globe. The globe is a lie. Well, you know, that would be wrong. But of course, on the other hand, the the real world is far far more complex than the globe lets on. And and so I try to you know navigate this with my students to say. You know, yeah, there are going to be all these exceptions, and they're very real exceptions. These are, you know, the model really does abstract from reality. It does, it oversimplifies, it, it hides blemishes. It, you know, there are so many ways in which the real world is going to be different. Um, and so we, there's, we have to kind of live in this tension where there's truth, and you want to get as much of the truth you can from the model, but then you have to recognize all the ways in which it's, the myriad ways in which the real world is going to be you know, in which the model is going to mislead you about the way the real world actually works. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. Um, Okay, let's talk about Lord of the Rings now. So Lord of the Rings is obviously a far more complex story than Goldilocks and the Three Bears, different in many ways. Indeed. Um, And you sort of explored the authority over space and, I mean, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this knows, but Lord of the Rings centers itself around a piece of property in some way being being the ring. Um, so yeah, what can you tell me about That's this right. chapter and what you sort of found that was maybe similar or different to what you looked at when you were talking about Goldilocks? 
Yeah, well, so I, I used sort of two major examples in the paper from The Lord of the Rings. And The Lord of the Rings, of course, is, is excellent uh, in many ways for this kind of exploration because it you know lives and works in the world of folk and fairy tales but is is far more developed so we get a lot more complexity we we get a, a much deeper exploration of some of these themes and so i i as i was doing this i i turned to lord of the rings to to give greater illustration to concepts i had found elsewhere and so the the two main main points as as you mentioned were the authority over space so this is English tradition, um, you have sort of Blackstonian property, which is the, the sole and despotic dominion over uh, a thing, which is, you know, really absolute type of property. And um, there's a great interaction between uh, Aragorn and Theoden, where Theoden's guards ask Aragorn to give up his sword, and there's a clash of authority here, um, you know, in sort of all other things equal, Aragorn is by far, you know, is has the higher authority. He's got this duty to his to to uh, the sword, which comes in in other places, and and he, but he gives up the sword in deference to the the authority that Theoden has over the space, his home, and this I think is a you know is a stereotypically you know British idea that that you know the king has to ask permission of the, uh, you know, even the laborer to, to go into the laborer's home. That, the, you know, the, the home is, is, you know, sacred, is the, the ownership of the home, the authority over that space is, is higher even than the authority of the king. And, and of course, you know, this is, a, this is a social construct, but it's a really important one, uh, and, it, and it really undergirds exchange, right? You know, this is property is the, is the foundation from which exchange occurs, and it's, you know, such a weighty idea. Um, it it it's it seems to, or at least potentially, it it, it raises the possibility that um, there's something beyond economic value here, right? That that there's you couldn't trade this away. There's there's a normative aspect of ownership that that is sort of inalienable. Um, you know, truly, you, you couldn't you couldn't just sell this right. It inheres in in owners in in property holders um, in a way that sort of thereby determines all social interaction. And it also it also provides the ground for moral decision making. And so this is where I, I also kind of contrast that with Oscar Wilde's story, The Selfish Giant, and where you have the giant who refuses to let the children play in his garden and then winter comes and it never leaves. And then in the end, the giant changes, has a change of heart and allows the children back into the garden and, you know, thereby comes his redemption. And, you know, I think the implication of the story is he's, he's welcomed into heaven essentially. Um, you know, so it's, it is actually his, his authority over space. He abuses it and then he, uh, and then he, you know, uses it properly and, you know, thereby finds his redemption. So there's something, you know, really integral to that story about this authority over space. And then the second component that I pull out of Lord of the Rings is a, is a much older, much older concept from fantasy and, uh, you know, from folktale that Tolkien just, that you uses, but is, it's ubiquitous in 
fantasy, I think, which is the idea that we can imbue external objects with our soul. Yeah. So that that and that's that's maybe my my favorite of all. But do you, before I go on to that, do you want to? ask anything or, or dwell on that first idea um no I was kind of already thinking about that anyway okay. <laughs> so like the idea that people okay, absorb okay, property okay. as as them so I'll let you talk about that yeah okay so yeah I mean this one this one like we see it everywhere that there's there there are Egyptian myths having to do with the storing of of one's person or one's soul in an, in a in a jar um there are, uh, and, and then more modern things like, <clears throat> obviously, you've got Sauron who who imbues the ring with his his very you know essence, his power, and he's so connected to it that it you know when it is destroyed, he is destroyed. Um, but you've got you know Voldemort does the same thing in the Harry Potter books, and, and the you know so it's it's everywhere this idea that somehow you know by way of magic or by way of you know, some other mystical force, we can take our very person and and put it in or connect it to an external object. And while we, I think, all recognize that as 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 fantasy, it's actually not terribly far from the way that we speak about our possessions. Yeah. And you know, you you might you might say that that's unhealthy, but. It's something that seems to be very, very common. You know, the idea, like an heir, a family heirloom, where where someone might say something like, you know, when I lost that, you know, that necklace, my my great grandmother's necklace, I it was like I lost a part of myself, my soul, my soul. You know, and and and, and if if you heard that and said, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense, well, you'd be, you know, <laughs> quite callous. <laughs> that of, that of course we do that. Um, I think that that is, it's. It's not nearly so real as in the stories. You know, none of us, none of us, you know, j- truly would die if, if you know, our most prized possession were destroyed. But there's, you know, I think that idea about about that connection between uh, a person and an object, where that object, in some cases, can even form a part of our identity, as with Sauron and the Ring as with Aragorn and his sword, where his kingship is tied up in the sword, much like the the king, stories of King Arthur and the sword in the stone, where, you know, that connection is is a is a crystallization of something that is actually true to human experience. And and I think as economists we tend to ignore that component of property and and, and not always, but but there's a tendency, I think, perhaps to do that, and that stories can can remind us that this is a very real part of human experience of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people people are obsessed with attaching symbols and meaning to objects all the time, so it's pretty crazy right. that we don't think of that when we think about property, like you mentioned in the introduction, and this is something I guess that you're sort of objecting to in this paper is property is not just a bundle of rights it's so much more it informs us as people um on on friday so i work in the food industry and i went to the good food summit which was over on vancouver island and one of the sessions i sat in on kind of talked about this as well which is very timely for this recording 
Um, and oh, there boy. was a First Nations man who was from Vancouver Island and, you know, his, his ancestry and his history was like a huge part of why he was there. And we were talking about, or the panel were talking about sea life and seafood and the problems that were going on. And there was this kind of this thing going on here in BC at the moment is no one wants to take ownership of the resource. No one wants to take responsibility of the salmon or of the shellfish because we've drawn bureaucratic lines. And the way he looked at it, he was like, in my culture, the resources own themselves. They're not our property. They're our ancestors. And he sort of went on to tell this story about three brothers who had to go and give themselves to the sea so the rest of their people could be fed and they turned into shellfish. So every everything in the ocean is your ancestor, so you need to respect it. And I thought it was really interesting in the context of land management because it's yeah. definitely something that we do. Like we, well, especially in like the Anglo-American context, which we're talking about in this paper is we own stuff and we're obsessed with taking ownership of things without thinking about what that might mean to someone else who's spiritually connected to it. Sure. Yeah. So what, what do you think yeah. the sort well, of, I, sorry, you, you can continue. No, no, please ask. So what do you think the sort of implications are in everyday real life based on what you've discussed in this paper and today when it comes to property? Gosh, well, so I think the, the way that I end that paper, and this is something I'm, I'm working on still, is that along with these notions of, of ownership and this deep connection that, that I think people have with the things that they own, is that in these, in these older views, there is, there is a, an element of moral responsibility that, that accompanies ownership in the stories, right? That things like in, in King Arthur and his, and his sword and Aragorn and his sword, that it's not just a, it's not just a bunch of rights that Aragorn inherits when he, when he takes on the sword. And this is why Aragorn is really hesitant to, to take it in the first place. Um, because it's not just rights. It's not just power that he gets when he takes ownership. It's also responsibilities that he inherits uh, along with his yeah. kingship. And I think that, that perhaps connects to some of what you were, what you were talking about. And I, I think it's a really important thing that, you know, these stories were told at a time when, or at least many of them had their origins at a time where there was, people took seriously, I think, or at least ideally we would have taken seriously um, the notion that that um, ownership came with a, with a whole host of, of sort of social responsibilities um, or, you know, other, other looking responsibilities. And, and that this is like, like Oscar Wilde's story that, you know, the ownership is a key component, but more important in some sense, like you want to get past that, move past the owner, the question of ownership toward the question of what then do you do with these resources? And so the, the, Forgive the the uh, the language, but the um, the giant experiences a kind of uh, uh, hellish existence when he does the wrong thing with this. You know, he excludes the, the children, which might be his right, but isn't isn't the good thing. So he's judged. He he is seen as a, a lamentable character, a, a horrid character, and then and then he does the right thing with it, recognizing the obligations that arise from his ownership, and then he becomes redeemed. And so I think there's there's an element of stewardship that that these stories highlight, and 
I'm still working through, you know, kind of what the what the next steps are, sort of what are the implications, where where do I go next? But I think one one theme that ties a lot of this together is that all of these stories are a vital source of information. And I, and I, you know, this is my my pet project in all of this is that I really I love using stories to illustrate economic concepts, but I love even more this notion that stories are actually an important input into our understanding of the world. That um, yeah. we need these just as much as we need our mathematical models to understand the world properly. And, and I don't want to denigrate the mathematical models. I think they can be incredibly useful in distilling, you know, what's going on in the world and helping us to get a grasp on it. But I think I think we also we we probably underappreciate pretty dramatically the the insights we can get from stories as one more way of of simplifying, crystallizing, illustrating these essential elements of our of our existence, of our, you know, of our science. And that's, that's true in Captain America, where perhaps it's a little lighter, where we use these superhero stories just to, to kind of give life to some of the, the models that we're using to, to help to bring these, these concepts we learn in our principles classes, kind of uh, to highlight those and make them more clear, make, you know, uh, bring them closer to the real world. But then in a, in kind of a deeper way in these, these you know, kind of culturally embedded stories that actually affect the way we interact with one another in markets, you know, in our exchange relationships. That I think, you know, these are a really crucial part of, of the way the world works and, and how we should understand it. Yeah, for sure. It kind of um, leans into the overlap that economics can get with psychology, not a scientific, but you develop so much of your personality between the ages of two and seven. Yeah. This is when you're getting all of the stories thrown at you. So, And stories are also a lot more accessible to a wider population than a mathematical formula, which I agree is very important. But I don't think I would have as many listeners, if any, if I was just crunching numbers on this podcast rather than trying to explore things like this. So it helps more people understand you know, what's going on. Yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about today? No, I think that covered all of it. Cool. And so in terms of this paper, are you happy for me to post it in the show notes on my oh, website sure. or is it yours? Yeah, oh, I can post a link to that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, awesome. uh, yeah, let me figure out how to get you the right like link to to post it because what I, I think what I sent you might have oh, been a perfect. proof copy <laughs> yeah okay cool yeah you just sent me a pdf so I can, I can yeah. wait for that no problem all right yeah. awesome well thanks so much it's been it's been really nice talking to you interesting oh, stuff it was my pleasure I look forward to part two <laughs> sounds good all right have a great night you as well take care bye as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview and learned some interesting things about fairy tales, folklore and property. I thought it was really interesting information and we'll definitely be incorporating it into some future episodes I'm planning for you all. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. 
please rate and review on iTunes as this is the easiest way to support the show. And don't forget to set it to auto-download. For more podcasts, check out our other shows, Comedy Zeitgeist, DMs of Vancouver, and Podcast vs. Podcast on the Cave Goblin Network. We have much more coming for you next year, so follow us on Twitter and check our website for updates. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. I was told that once, the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed, and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.